This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you with support from AWS Educate. AWS Educate provides students and educators with free resources to accelerate cloud-related learning to enhance tech career readiness. There's a lot we don't know about how the brain works, but scientists are finding out more every day. And one maybe surprising thing experts are saying these days is that empathy pretty seriously affects our ability to learn. I'm Sydney Johnson, an assistant editor here at EdSurge. This weekend, I caught up with John Medina, a developmental molecular biologist and professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Medina keynoted the Learning in the Brain Education Conferences last week in San Francisco. He studies the brain for a living, everything from the microscopic happenings in our head to the way the human brain evolved to what we know today. It's all very complicated, but he thinks there's information out there on how the brain works, and in particular, how empathy changes learning outcomes, that classroom teachers should have an understanding of. Here's what he has to say. We're here at the Learning in the Brain conference in San Francisco. And so to get started, I wanted to ask you a little bit about a book that you wrote a few years ago now um, about brain rules. Um, and so just to kind of get started, what, what are the brain rules? <laughs> well, the brain rules start out with a fair amount of skepticism. I was asked a while back, you know, if you, could, uh, if you had an unlimited budget and few bureaucratic constraints and could do anything for the system of education in the United States, what would you do? Would you bring the brain sciences in? And I said originally, no, I don't think you can. We don't know enough about how the brain works. I mean, we still don't know how you know how to pick up a pencil and write your name with it. I'm still actually fairly skeptical about it, but the more I got into it, the more I saw that I was being a little disingenuous. There are 12 things I think you can say, and it begins with uh, what I call the evolutionary performance envelope of the human brain. Because even though we don't know very much, I mean, we don't know most of the basics even still. Uh, we're not clueless. For example, we know it's that evolutionary performance envelope is simple and straightforward. The human brain appears to have been designed to solve problems related to surviving in an outdoor setting in unstable meteorological conditions and to do so in near constant motion. So, even though we don't know very much about the brain, the little that we do know suggests that if you wanted to design a learning environment that was directly opposed to what the brain is naturally good at doing, you'd design a classroom. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, for there's between 8 and 10 million years since we diverged from chimpanzees, and all of that was done primarily in East Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, this brain developed under conditions of the Serengeti, of the savannah, of the sides of the Ngorongoro crater. Uh, it was built to survive. It wasn't built to be in a classroom per se. Isn't that the saddest sentence in the world? What? Yeah, what is, <laughs> like, how so? Like, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, we're built to move. 12 miles a day, 20 kilometers a day, probably. Seven days a week, all the time. If we sit still in one place for 30 minutes in the Serengeti, given our extraordinary weak claws and bad incisors and hair, we'd be lunch. <laughs> Yet we take kids that were designed to be moving around 12 miles a day, scrabbling up and down the sides of a, of a crater, moving all around the Serengeti, and we put them into a classroom for eight hours and expect them to sit still? That's like taking a jet airplane and just saying, oh, you know, I want you to taxi around the airport. I don't want you to fly. I don't want you to move from one place to another. Just sit there and taxi. Now, airplanes can do that. It's not what they're built for. Hmm. And so how does that play out in terms of 
learning and, and what students are, are, like are they benefiting from the classroom or not? Let's take exercise as a perfect example. From the idea that we were really moving 12 miles per day and that we evolved under conditions of near constant motion, you could hypothesize that exercise would improve brain function if all you did all day long was sit in your butt. And that is absolutely the case. The more kids move, and not just kids, adults, seniors, this has been tested at every age group, and wherever it has been tested has been found to be the same result. Exercise improves cognition. In fact, aerobic exercise improves a specific type of cognition called executive function. Are your listeners familiar with executive function? Should I explain that? You should explain it. Yes, please. Executive function was first uh, 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 discovered or characterized by a gifted neuroscientist named Mike Posner. And what it is, it's the ability to get things done. (laughs) That's what executive function is. But it has two large peers. One of them is what we call cognitive control, which is the ability to shift attentional states from one state to the next. It's also the ability to do what we call mental time travel, so that you have an ability to foresee a set of circumstances before they actually happen. Teens are really bad at that, which is why they get into car wrecks all the time and their Mm. insurance rates are all up. That's working memory, short-term memory. That's all a form of of, uh, the cognitive control component Mm -hmm. of executive function. There's also another big peer that Mike Posner has characterized with executive function, and that is emotional regulation. So things like impulse control, the ability to rein in your predilections if you want to do something and you don't do it because you have good impulse control. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, people that have problems with anger management, for example, have very poor executive function in their impulse control um, stripes. Also moodiness, affect regulation is a, is a part of that. So, you know, if you think about it for a second, if executive function is, is controlling memory and attentional states and it's also controlling impulse control and really your ability to get along with somebody, Anything that could improve executive function is going to be dynamite in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what you find. If I had, if I had my way, I would have the entire uh, school system in the United States would have a uniform. You know what that uniform would be? <laughs> Gym clothes. <laughs> and you would have a guided aerobic workout in the morning, and you'd probably have one in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And the, in fact, the school would look like the, the gym would be the center of it. So, it's just one way. Is it fair more. to say your suggestion or, or solution to challenges in, in the American education system is more PE? That would be a part of it. There's a huge range. And what's really weird is that you actually don't have to be fit. You just have to be exercising all the time. Mm -hmm. The ability to shift up and get that blood flow. Yes, part of the powerful solution to uh, uh, changes in the uh, uh, American education system would be what involved PE in terms of the school. And that's about half of what I would do. Mm -hmm. Here's the other half. Do you know what is a great predictor of executive function? The emotional stability of the home in which the kid is being raised. So if you challenge me to say, let's change the school system, I can only give you about a 50% answer because the other half I would ask you, well, what do you know about the home life? My research interests are the genetics of psychiatric disorders. I spend a long time thinking about how the brain develops in the womb, and then what happens when things screw up years later and a psychopathology emerges. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that predict those psychopathologies, if you're depressed, if if you're anxious, your grades usually suck. You usually don't do very well. Your risk for suicide goes way high. Your your risk of of social withdrawal is strong. Uh, So anything that can improve that is going to be of great power. So you look at this from a very, you know, scientific molecular level. And talking about terms like executive function and cognitive control, uh, like how much of that should classroom teachers really know and understand and, and be applying to their teaching? I actually think that we should change a great deal of how teachers are taught what they're taught. You know, 
I will go out on a limb. I get in trouble for this, and I actually don't care. <laughs> in in most universities, the, the departments of education are do not study the very thing they are charged with studying. You know, a geologist studies rocks. You a molecular biologist going to study molecules? Well, you can argue that learning involves the brain. You don't you don't you don't process information with your pancreas. You would argue that the colleges of education should be the cognitive neuroscientist units of an entire university setting. Yeah. So I would start with how we teach, tra I would retrain them. I would retrain teachers so that they are the neuroscientists, the cognitive neuroscientists of learning. They are the people that all everybody in the university would look up to to say, hmm. well, exactly how does the brain process information? And why is it that executive function, which would be one of the first things I would teach them, mm -hmm. is so powerful in the life of a student? And what are the research projects that we could do to aid in the bet to understand if my idea about putting a gym with gym clothes, is that mm -hmm. really worth doing? Mm -hmm. You know, the real answer to that, Cindy, is we have no idea. I have no idea if that would work mm -hmm. because we don't get together and yeah. Um, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, the theme at the conference this weekend is, of course, empathy and learning. Um, and so what have you discovered in your own research about the relationship between empathetic behavior, brain function, and student performance? Human learning is primarily a relational enterprise. Empathy is a part of that. Uh, I'm convinced, I can't show this empirically at all, although you can show that they're strong, and in fact, I'll be talking about the empirical support for when you teach empathy, p kids' grades usually go up, hmm. but you teach empathy for the teachers. <laughs> huh. okay. And the kids' grades go up. The, uh, uh, there's lots of different ways to show that. It, it, it improves their moral reasoning, but it turns out there's what's called a far transfer effect, because not only do you improve moral reasoning, you just improve reasoning in general, hmm. the more empathy training everybody gets. And this is empathy training for the teachers or the students that you're Well, in this about? particular case, we'll start with the teachers because, okay. then it, because it flows out from them. But you can also show that SEL programs, which are designed for the students, mm -hmm. those that have a strong emphasis on executive function and empathic training, usually improve the grades of those kids that do mm -hmm. it. Uh, mm -hmm. The whole idea that uh, underscoring, if you teach somebody and they begin to feel safe, and here's where empathy comes in because... Sydney, I don't know if you see the same red that I do. Mm. We are so isolated in our own brains. Mm. There's a fair amount of, uh, of barriers that are put up between any two people because we can't access each other's thought life. Sure. Except if you feel empathetic, then you get the illusion that, that somebody is sharing your space. Okay. It drives most people to tears when they go, oh, so low anymore. That sense of safety mm -hmm. for a child, is a student, uh, it actually works really well with high schoolers, is so powerful that they act, the brain opens up and says, I will learn. My feeling, it comes from the fact that uh, the human brain wasn't built for learning. The human brain was built for surviving. But if, but if those survival instincts are tamped down so that it's okay, you're, yeah, I can survive now, it allows all the other angels of its nature to move forward. So I guess one thing that I can't help thinking is, how do you actually measure empathy? How do you study it when you're doing this research? What does that mean? Sure. Uh, it's a three-step process in general. I, I see and can detect some kind of, say I'm looking at your face and you look really happy. So I can look at your face, oh, she's really, really happy. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's not empathy, but it is an affective detection and you need that. If mm -hmm. you can't recognize happiness versus sadness, you're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I can see that though, oh, she's happy, then if I'm going to do empathy, a second step has to occur. And it's called virtual transposition, sometimes called relational transposition, where I take your feelings that I'm detecting and I put them inside my psychological interior. I try it on like it was clothing. 
It's like the Stanislavski method of acting, actually. Mm. I think that's the closest thing that I've ever seen that actually has part of that. But we literally call it, it's a good term, virtual transposition. Okay. Because I'm trying to transpose onto myself. And so I'll ask, well, if I were had, you know, if I were happy, what would that feel like? There, that's empathy. That's the second step. But we're not finished. The third step is the ability to understand at all times, if I'm beaming at you and I'm seeing that you're happy, you're called the conspecific in the research world. Okay. okay. If I have to understand at all times that the conspecific is feeling the happiness, not me. I have to have a boundary. Mm. And if I have a boundary, then you can have true, that's the formal definition of empathy. Oh, I am now empathizing with someone, but I'm not becoming them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I am simply empathizing with my conspecific. Okay, so that's empathy. We'll hear more about how Medina and other researchers are measuring that and what teachers should know right after the break. From the AWS Educate Starter Account and the AWS Educate Job Board to a Cloud Associates degree and virtual classroom environments, AWS Educate has been delivering new initiatives to bring cloud learning and jobs to students since 2015, with a mission to provide students and educators with the resources needed to accelerate cloud-related learning AWS Educate is getting ready to announce its newest offering for educators. Since launch, over 2,400 member institutions, 10,000 educators, and hundreds of thousands of students have used AWS Educate to learn about cloud technology. Learn more at bit.ly slash AWS Educate Evolution and sign up to hear about what is next. With that in mind, so let's put that on the shelf. Okay. Now we have two types and we can measure them all. We can talk about the, maybe, uh, yeah, I'll talk about the two types and I'll tell you how we measure them. One is called cognitive empathy, which is simply the uh, ascent that, oh, you're feeling something differently than me. Some people call that theory of mind. I think that can be confusing. And I don't think the literature is all that good about it. Some papers are really sloppy about that. Mm-hmm. Get between those two. You have to be careful. Uh, the other one is called affective empathy, which is simply what, what I was just describing. It's the ability to feel. It's emotive. Okay. Some people are stronger at one than the other, but we can measure them. One measure that's really strong is called the IRI the Interpersonal Reactivity Index of Davis et al. Way back when, it's got a number of subscales in it. It has really high reliability scores, and if you know what an internal validity and external validity scores are, um, these are good psychometric tests that have been well established, and you can use them, we can detect it. Mm -hmm. You can actually get a theory of mind too, some people would call that cognitive empathy, utilizing uh, a test that you can actually take online now. It's called the uh, Reading the Mind in the Eyes, the RME test, have you heard of it before? I haven't. It is um, uh, developed by uh, uh, one of the great cognitive neuroscientists of Oxford, Simon Baron Cohen. Okay. Does that name sound at all familiar to you? I have to admit it does not. He has a very famous cousin. His his name is Sasha Baron Cohen. Okay. (laughs) And if you ever saw the movie Borat, they're actually cousins. Okay. Okay, (laughs) wow. I can imagine what family reunions look like. That's a fun fact I wasn't expecting to come away with. All right. (laughs) The RME test, which you can take, which also has really high reliability during internal and external validity, is used all over the world. It's a it's a tough test, man. You what you're gonna be you're just gonna be given somebody's eyes. And they're and the person the, the, the photographs, they're experiencing the real emotion. And your job is to tell is to tell a researcher mm-hmm. what the emotion is you're looking at. Yeah. And you usually have about four choices. You were talking about how when students feel safe in the classroom, when there's empathy in coming from a teacher, that they're more likely to uh, be receptive to learning. How are our teachers not doing this enough? I don't have a suggestion, but I have an indictment. I believe that teachers increasingly are some of the most stressed populations in the world mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, if we stay with just within the U.S. 
the amount of standards that they have to give, the funding that might be a problem. It doesn't, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that strikes are occurring in districts like popcorn. It's mm -hmm. popping everywhere. People are reaching a limit to what they can do with the standards that are out there, the kinds of things they have to do, the parents that they have to put up with. Uh, they are so stressed. Empathy has a huge, what we call a cognitive load. It takes a lot to be mm -hmm. empathetic on a regular basis. And if you're already stressed out because you don't make enough money and you just got yelled at by the superintendent's assistant and then a parent came in and you had a lousy conference, you don't have anything left. And those stressed populations, when you stress a teacher, you stress anybody, the ability for them to be consistently empathetic uh, uh, wanes. In fact, we have a term for it. It's actually called, if you do too much of it, you tip, the, the tipping point is called empathic distress. Hmm. If you have too much, but if you don't have much reserves left, you can reach that empathic distress at a fairly low level. Mm -hmm. So that's why this is an indictment, but not a suggestion, because mm -hmm. one of the things you'd have to do is to give that freaking population of professionals a break. I, I also wanted to jump back a, a few moments ago. You were mentioning how uh, using SEL, so, so social emotional learning, yeah. can have a lot of benefits for yeah. teachers who are teaching that. And I'd love if you could kind of talk through that a little bit. When you start teaching, we did a series of experiments. We didn't publish them, so this is going to be a comment rather than a, an appeal to the peer review, although we, uh, we did study it for a while. We actually taught empathic skills. We taught what was called a two-step, uh, whereby if somebody, if, if a student came in, uh, with extraordinarily uh, uh, an emotionally competent stimulus, ECS of some kind. Uh, the training was to, instead of reacting, usually people, when, when that happens, people just withdraw. Instead, to go forward and to see if, if you can verbalize what, what the student is mm. feeling and then make a guess as to where you think it's coming from. So it's a, it's a, a telepathic form of empathy. And we began to notice changes in grades almost immediately. Mm. The, uh, because what, but what we think was happening is it was calming the teacher down. I don't think it was doing anything with the student. It was just making the teacher own better to his or her reason why she wow. went into this in the first place. What's the key takeaway that you're hoping folks will uh, come away with from your talk later on? Well, one of the biggest is to understand that empathy can change somebody's grades. That's a big deal. Hmm. Most people don't know that. The, uh, the, the empathic, when a kid is beginning to get empathy training, so I see training, in the few places where it's actually been tested, some of it's been tested really well, so it passes my growth factor at any rate, um, every time you do that, you see some extraordinary changes in grades. And it's simply because I think the safety issues are so settled. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me, Cindy. Thanks for listening to the EdSurge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Sydney Johnson. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen. And tune in next week for more on the future of education.